Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, the federal liberals face increasing political pressure to extend the carbon tax holiday to other fuels. Will British Columbians finally get some tax relief? Plus, the week that was, Keith Baldry joins me to discuss the provincial government bigfooting local government on housing and BC United's fundraising rules. And we catch up with organizers who are launching the first major acapella festival in Vancouver. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's focus on Israel and the Middle East. Today, the leader of Lebanon's Hezbollah warned the United States uh, that, uh, preventing, that preventing a regional conflict depended on stopping the Israeli attack on Gaza. And they said there was a possibility of fighting on the Lebanese front turning into a full-fledged war. Syed Hassan Nasrallah, in his first speech since the Israel-Hamas war erupted on October 7th, also threatened Israel's main ally, the U.S., hinting his Iran-backed group was already uh, was ready to confront U.S. warships uh, in the Mediterranean. Now, as geopolitical issues are debated, it's important to people remember there are Canadians whose family and friends have been kidnapped and held hostage uh, in um, in Gaza. Uh, Israel led the Israel lay uh, Israel sorry laid siege to Hamas ruled Gaza following the October seventh uh, cross border assault by the group that Israel says killed around fourteen hundred people with about two hundred forty uh, spirited away as hostages back to the Palestinian enclave. Erin Brodich's sister in law and her three children age 10, 8, and 4, were kidnapped on that day. Aaron Brodich joins us from Toronto. Aaron, thank you for speaking to us today. Thank you for having me. Could you tell the story uh, and let us know a little bit of uh, Hagal and the three children? Uh, yeah, so um, my my brother's family, um, my brother lives in Kibbutz Kfar Aza. Uh, his house is the first house uh, on the fence, um, and his his wife Hagal and his three children, Ofli, who's ten years old, Yuval, who's eight years old, and Uria, who's four years old, uh, were taken uh, kidnapped by Hamas from their house in Kfaza on the morning of October seventh, and they're currently held in Gaza. We don't know what the situation is. We don't know how they're being held. We believe they're alive, um, but we don't know in, in what state and we don't know for how long. Uh, were you able to talk uh, to your brother or his family on that day or days prior to, to, to the event? So, yeah, the days before the event, uh, of course, I, I speak to my brother uh, very often um, and, and to his kids, especially to his older daughter. Um, she was in Toronto uh, visiting us during the summer. Um, she spent a month in Toronto, um, had an incredibly good time here. Um, and then uh, I flew into Israel a few days after uh, everything happened and spent two weeks there. And then from there I went uh, with my brother to Washington, D.C. Um, to 
to talk to government and to talk to the Qatari ambassador. And from there, I flew alone uh, back to Canada, uh, to Ottawa, uh, speaking to government officials, including the prime minister and the speaker, um, and then back to Toronto to talk to um, local government, including uh, Premier Ford. Was there any um, concern uh, expressed by your brother, his wife, uh, just about just the the area that they lived in, any worries they had prior to any of this happening in regards to potential attacks from um, Hamas? Um, so they, they're right on the border. They mm-hmm. can see Gaza from their window. Um, and uh, they've been experiencing rockets for you know, the past um, 15 years in the area, I guess they haven't lived there for 15 years, but since since they moved there, uh, they moved during the previous war. Um, there have been, not in Kvaza, but in other places, there have been infiltrations through tunnels. Um, and so it's not the safest place in the world, but the expectation was that the worst thing that can happen um, is a small infiltration, um, and that they were, you know, reasonably safe. Uh, what message would you like our listeners and Canadians to take from this? What would you want Canadians to do at this moment? Uh, Canada is is a leader in human rights. It has led the world uh, a number of times on issues of human rights and on humanitarian situations, I think Canada can take the lead uh, once again and should take the lead once again in um, you know, driving a coalition uh, to uh, release the hostages. The issue of the hostages is not controversial. There are women and children, my family, um, and other families who are being held by terrorists this is not a normal part of any war, um, and I'm I'm sure that Canada can lead the way in you know, uh, driving to release them uh, as soon as possible. And I I want to stress that this is uh, an issue that has to be resolved quickly. There are children there, and every day they can die. Uh, have Israeli authorities been updating you or, or your brother um, on a, on a regular basis? Um, no, but uh, I think that's expected. I I doubt they will be telling us their plans on on the next steps, which mm-hmm. you know, makes sense. They should be held secret, and if they do have any information about the well-being of my family, that might very well also be secret. And so, um, you know, we're not getting any information, but I, I think that's to be expected. Um, yeah, we, we just want the release. I think information is not, you know, that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know in, in moments like this, we at times, you know, get into the broader conversation of Israel and the Middle East and, and Palestine and, and those types of conversations. Um, I'm going to assume you you stay away from all of that and probably because a lot of it can be just noise right now at its core for you 
the focus will remain and does remain um, the family and, and all families and getting them out safely. A hundred percent. We're, you know, we're just concerned for our family. Um, and this is an obvious, obvious violation of human rights. I think every single person who's looking at this conflict should uh, focus on, on this very clear you know, violation of anything that any human being stands for, holding women and children hostage, is just wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, Aaron, thank you so much for your time. I know it's a very difficult moment for yourself and your family, and I appreciate you making time for, for us and for our audience today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Joining us now is contributor Jerry Mary Judson. How are you doing this Friday? Oh, it's Friday. I can't complain. How are you? I'm doing very well. You're <laughs> absolutely right. Busy show, though. We've got uh, the immigration minister on. Mm-hmm. We've got uh, TransLink CEO uh, Kevin Quinn coming in. We've got an acapella I'm excited for the acapella group. <laughs> That's on my street. I know you would be. But I want to talk to you about this segment. Uh, you were mentioning this to me earlier mm-hmm. today. You can always tell the difference between, obviously, fast talkers and slow, slow talkers, right? Certainly. And they all have their strengths. But there's a study now where they gauge who are the fastest talkers and the slowest talkers in Absolutely. Canada? In Canada. So the study was done by a company called Preply. They're an online language learning marketplace. And uh, it was interesting. They took the 10 most populous Canadian cities and stacked them up to see how fast and slow they talk. So on average, Canadians use 175.6 words a minute. The fastest talkers are in Edmonton, of all places, with 210 words a minute. So they're pretty quick. And the slowest speakers in the country weirdly are in Toronto with what yeah Toronto 149 versus 175 on average I bet you're wondering where does Vancouver stack up Jerry Vancouver kind of lands in the middle we're the fourth slowest but uh with uh, 170 words a minute we're the slowest though this side of Ontario hmm. Sylvia Johnson she is a language expert at Preply um she, I asked her today about this study and how they even went about it we took a seed list of the 10 most populated Canadian cities and then we delved into YouTube data and started analysing speech rates. So we analysed the transcripts of the videos from local news stations or podcasts, etc. And this way we were able to calculate the average word said per minute for each city. Totally makes sense because what are you going to do? Hold up microphones to people in the street? Exactly. That would be a very fun way of doing it as well. <laughs> but yeah, but we decided it was easier rather than going on to every city and every street and talking to people. We're like, no, we're just going to take some podcasts and YouTube videos, analyze the transcript and then take an average. The So Vancouver, where I'm calling from, we are the fourth slowest talking city and so that's like the slowest talking city on the west coast this side of ontario were the results sort of was the tone that the results were surprising given these big cities yeah to a certain extent because you would normally associate fast beach rate with fast-paced cities and in especially sort of those kind of like urban environments people tend to speak a little bit faster to keep up with the hustle and bustle nobody has time and so yeah there were a few surprises but I think it does also depend on the podcast we actually analyze so when you look at it overall when we were listening to for example sports podcasts again the speech rate there tended to be a lot faster because it's their job to communicate and to convey the excitement, the emotion of sports. Well, when we were listening to podcasts on slightly heavier topics, they tended to slow down. 
and we think partly to ensure that the message was clearly understood and also in the terms of news reports to convey a little bit of respect with the severity of what they were talking about as well. In Vancouver, we did, we actually listened to four different podcasts and a couple of them were real estate podcasts. And there was one that was actually the fastest and that came in at 201 words per minute. Oh, wow. So it was well above average. So again, it does depend. I'm also interested in talking about the linguistic differences. So Edmonton, Alberta ranked the highest in both English and French in terms of words per minute. But the French words per minute was something like 211. It's I mean, French in general is one of those very, very fast languages. And French especially is often perceived as having that faster pace of speech, especially in casual conversation. We've done this kind of research for the U.S. and the U.K. and Canada. Do you know off the top of your head which of these countries speaks the quickest in English on average? So one of the fastest speaking um, cities that came out was a U.K. city, which was 255 words per minute. So Leicester in the UK, which was, it seemed so absolutely fast as well. Well, thank you so much, Sylvia, for uh, elucidating the study here. It's been fascinating. We've all been talking about it at 149 words per minute in the office. And isn't it interesting? Because once you think about how fast you speak, do you find yourself naturally slowing down a little bit or speeding up? Is that a good speed or should I be speaking faster? Maybe I should be speaking slower. And I mean, and interesting enough, it's also to do a lot with the context. So when you hear people at public speaking, for example, quite often with their nerves, they start speeding up when actually they should be slowing down and vice versa. So I think it's always interesting to, to think about, at least when you're speaking, how fast am I speaking? How many people are going to understand me? And as you get more excited and more passionate about whatever you're speaking, then you're, you just naturally speed up. I'm still surprised uh, that Vancouver um, is at about 170 words, or somewhere in the middle. But mm. uh, like many, I think big city life, Toronto, Vancouver, always in a rush, always need to get things done, always moving, always five, ten minutes late. We would be the fast speakers. You would think so. What, and, I'm, con- what I'm curious about is... In the Maritimes, their their cities aren't populous enough to have ranked or to have been investigated. But good Lord, if you talk to a Newfoundlander, I want to know what the Newfoundland words per minute are. I want to know what someone in St. John's speaks in words per minute because I think it would be quicker. I think it would be 400. Just kidding. That's a big number. <laughs> but yeah, it would be a lot be more. I want to know what they're doing in Leicester, England there. <laughs> yeah, I want to. I feel like it would just be a different dialect of English to me and I would I would not understand. <laughs> it was uh, the, the professor said 255 words per yes. minute, right? Just yes. around there. Mm-hmm. That's 80 words per minute more than the average Vancouverite. That's a lot to say. That's they got a lot a to say in lot, Leicester. Lots to say. That's for sure. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you. <laughs> Well, the federal government plans to level out the number of new permanent residents to Canada in 2026 in reaction to a crunch on housing and other services. The immigration minister made the announcement on Wednesday. Uh, minister Mark Miller tabled new targets for the next three years, uh, which call for the number of new permanent residents to hold steady at 500,000 in 2026. The plan shows that the targets for 2024 and 2025 will increase as planned to 485,000 and 500,000 respectively. Joining me now is Canada's Minister of Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship, uh, Mark Miller. Minister, thank you for joining us today. 
Thanks, Jess, and thank you for having me on again. Yeah, I look forward to chatting. Uh, enjoyed our conversation last time. I think it's an important one. Um, there has been a lot of conversation about uh, and by Canadians and their concern in regards to immigration levels, particularly in the context of housing uh, and the context of affordability. Um, why did the government decide to stick with the 500,000 number? I know in 2025, that's already been announced before that the number would hit 500,000. Why the need to continue with 500,000 in 2026? Yeah, look, excellent question. I think um, that was an ambitious number to, to begin with. We really made some very important steps in increasing uh, the people that come to this country, whether they come in the economic category, uh, parents and, 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 and spouses or protected persons. And I think the time had come to take a look at that number and to see how we best fit the skills that we need as a country. Always, you know, we're still in a labor shortage. Uh, and how we better match them with the needs of uh, of this of Canada, and 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 that's what we, I've heard uh, through our strategic immigration review that we launched the results of uh, at the same week that the federal government governments in general need to do a better job of matching supply and demand and and making sure that that we're getting it right, particularly with the effects that this is having. And you mentioned housing, but it isn't only on housing. It's about infrastructure generally, the healthcare system, the education system, and and the impact on both sides of the equation of, of, um, of the volume that we're seeing. So it's, it's a reasonable step. Uh, It stabilizes the numbers at, at an ambitious level and allows us to, to take the course of the next year to make sure that we're actually doing a better job in, in a, on our public governmental public policy mm-hmm. in a bit fine-tuning our tools and adapting to what industry and what Canadians are telling us to do, which is really to do a better job um, with, uh, with the tools that we have. Uh, and just to, for our audience and myself, of course, uh, where do international students, temporary foreign workers, and refugees fit in the context of this? Those numbers, are they separate from the 500,000? Uh, so only one portion is there's really three categories of the 500,000. There's protected persons, which, which include refugees. That's about, uh, you know, just under 20%. Um, and then there's that other space that uh, that, that constitutes a, a significant part of the volume in the statistics uh, with respect to temporary foreign workers and international students, which wasn't part of the intellectual exercise that I am legally bound to to, to, to put in front of Parliament every November 1st. Uh, that number uh, when it comes to international students or temporary foreign workers is one that is quantified by a different process. Mm-hmm. But it is also playing into the discussion and the sentiment that we're seeing that we need to kind of take a look at that and, and look at the volume that's coming in and get it right. Before, I mean, since I spoke to you, Jess, mm-hmm. I made what I believe to be an important announcement on making sure that the federal government is taking some important steps to, to stem the fraud that is affecting uh, the integrity of the international student flow of people that are coming into this country. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was about a week and a bit ago. Yep. And that's an important step because there have been threats to the integrity of the system. And it's one that we need to address in a responsible way. Always mindful of the fact that provinces do play an important role uh, in, in regulating the institutions that require us to bring in international students. It is a very lucrative space. It is one um, where we want to continue to encourage international students to, 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 to be part of the top, uh, one, of, one of the top education systems in the world. Um, but it's also being abused by some bad actors, and we need to address that as well in a responsible way. Now, we've had international students in this country uh, for decades, and many of them, when they graduate from here, many of them stay and they're integral to the growth of this country uh, and its middle class. Um, 
But is it fair to say the government does acknowledge that, that that they've allowed too many international students, number one, just in regards to our education systems across this province, which are mandated provincially, have become too reliant on those dollars, number one. And number two, one could argue it cheapens our education system with so many coming in at one time. Um, do you think that was a mistake? I'm, I guess I'm more interested, just in the in the quality of the volume. And, and that's my concern when it comes to some of the fraud that we're seeing, which is, uh, it depends on the province you're in, but higher education institutions have been systemically underfunded by, by provinces for mm-hmm. a long time and they're smart. So they've adapted and they've seen this very um, interesting, lucrative uh, and very bright pool of candidates from abroad that um, that they have successfully leveraged to, to, to support that underfunding. Um, that's, a, that's an issue that we need to address as a country in a responsible way. Uh, international students generally enrich the education experience in Canada. We, in fact, compete for the, some of the top candidates. But again, on the margins, there has been some abuse, and I think that is what we're trying to address. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly can't do it alone, but I do have my responsibility in getting my shop right, and that's, that's what we've tried to do in the last week. It is not a conversation that is over. As you noted, when volume does get excessive, you want to be able to address it in a way, um, in a responsible way, without ruining someone's lucrative business model and without ruining the hopes and aspiration of an international student that could very, as you said, could very well contribute to the the future of this country or go home and be a soft ambassador of, of Canada. Minister, thank you for your time. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. All the best to your listeners and you, Jess. As we continue with our series, The Next Million, uh, the series has been looking at Metro Vancouver through the lens of another million people living here. Our population is presently 2.8 million people and is expected at 3.8 million by 2050. So how do we accommodate all these new residents? How do we work? How do we live and play in a region with a million more people? Now, earlier this week, we had former Premier Christy Clark join us to discuss how we govern the region in 2050. We were also recently joined uh, by Peter Dillon, chairman of Ocean Spray, to discuss food security for our region. In the weeks ahead, we'll all be looking at policing in 2050. And we're going to look beyond Surrey policing, by the way. And, of course, race, uh, race relations in a multi-ethnic city and how we build more homes for our city. And, of course, First Nations communities and their impact on Metro Vancouver over the next 25 years. Well, today we're going to focus on moving people from the, context, from the context of transit. You can't talk about the next million without involving TransLink. Better public transit uh, has huge benefits for communities, of course, so well-being, boosting economies, and of course helping climate change. But what does urban transit look like moving forward? Well, joining me now to discuss the future of transit with another million residents is Kevin Quinn, the CEO of TransLink. Kevin, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, John. My apologies for the long introduction, but I think I you need to sort of put all this in context. It does. It is, uh, you know, looking at things at 30,000 feet, but it's very important because it can have such an impact on the quality of life in a region, mm-hmm. particularly when it comes to moving people. Um, before we begin sort of the broader conversation, give me a snapshot of where TransLink is in sort of this post-pandemic environment. Environment. Sure, happy to do that. Um, you know, it's uh, TransLink's had a really interesting place. In fact, I'd say we're at a bit of a, a very pivotal crossroads. Uh, our ridership recovery sits today about 90% of uh, what it was pre-pandemic. And so we're actually leading North America in ridership recovery. Our SkyTrain system sits at, you know, the fourth busiest 
in North America uh, mm. of rapid transit systems. Our bus system is the third busiest. And I think what's fascinating about transit in Metro Vancouver is that, you know, while we're fourth overall in North America in ridership, we're only the, you know, 25th or 26th biggest metro area by population, right? So mm -hmm. we, we really punch above our weight. Um, at the same time, you know, as, as we've been encouraging riders to come back to the system, uh, it's a bit of a double-edged sword as we're now really starting to see some overcrowding out on the system. And, and overcrowding levels now match or are worse than they were in 2019 when TransLink was growing at a really rapid pace. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we're doing what we can. You know, uh, ridership recovery has really um, uh, been different based on geographic areas. So, you know, south of the Fraser has come back and some areas are at 120, 130% ridership return. Some routes are at 150%. I mean, it's, mm. it's quite incredible how ridership has come back. And, you know, you, you, you take that, uh, and you put it against the fact that, you know, as you noted, the region is growing, set to grow by a million people by 2050. Mm -hmm. uh, just last year, uh, you know, while there were projections of about 50,000 per year, we saw about 77,000 people come to the region, another 70,000 this year. And so our region is growing by leaps and bounds. Uh, we're starting to see the pressures of that on our transit system. Okay. Uh, now, when people think transit, or maybe when I do, yeah. I always think SkyTrain first. It's, it's sure. the shiny bauble. It moves yeah. people. It's been around. It's got a great history in the city. But I actually don't want to talk about transit, trans, uh, the, the SkyTrain, because yeah. uh, it's a beautiful piece of technology. Many people say it's really expensive. And I've been through enough meetings in my time as a mm. reporter for 25 years in the Canada line, even the old Expo line. I want to talk about the humble bus mm. just for a moment. Yeah. Where does the bus fit in in regards to moving people by 2050. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think the bus is uh, is the crown jewel. Uh, you know, the bus is the, the ultimate workhorse of any transit system. And in fact, the bus plays uh, center stage for us in our 10-year priorities. So, you know, we've worked uh, with our mayors, uh, our mayor's council and our, our board to really outline what the next 10 years of investments we want to look like in our, in our access for everyone plan. And that plan does take a bus first approach. You know, as we've gone out and done public outreach for uh, Transport 2050, our 30 year transportation plan, or even this 10 year plan, um, you know, what we've heard loud and clear is people want solutions now. Uh, the fact is there's a climate crisis now. There's an affordability mm -hmm. crisis today. There's a housing crisis right now. We can't wait uh, 20 years for a solution to come. And so we think that um, a bus first approach is the right one. And, and so we've got big plans in that 10 year priorities to double local bus service over the next 10 years to introduce bus rapid transit uh, technology, uh, technology this region has never really seen. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it really, the bus does take center stage. We, uh, we need more space for depots. We need to electrify the bus fleet, but absolutely the, the, the mighty bus, uh, shines large in our plans. So for it's sure. still it, the the center of moving people is still the bus. It's not going to be SkyTrain. Yeah, our our bus system today moves uh, around sixty to seventy percent of all of our riders, and I would suspect that stays the same. That said, you know we've got some great SkyTrain expansions underway with the mm -hmm. Broadway Subway project and the Surrey Langley SkyTrain. That's going to add a lot of riders to to the SkyTrain system. That said. Um, there are industrial areas today that don't have service. There are new residential areas coming on board that do not have service, and, and we want to provide that service. A lot of that comes down to having uh, the buses, the depots, and the operating funding to make that happen. Um, I want to talk about technology just for a second. Sure. When you look at ride sharing, you know, literally, if I get an Uber or, or Lyft, I know when the, the, the driver is coming, how far away mm -hmm. they are. When can we see something like that for a bus? 
let's just say if you know uh, the bus you're going to yeah. catch and there's some way to log on, or how far away are we from that? So we're, we're here. So you can use the transit app or Google Maps and... Uh, for the most part, you can see buses moving on those lines. We're in the process of upgrading the technology on our buses so that that's really shown everywhere. But I take the bus every day to get to work. I take the bus and the SkyTrain, and uh, I take a look at you know those apps to see where my bus is and, and uh, follow along. You can sign up for rider alerts on our website. Riders can do that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but that's certainly a key piece of technology that's part of the rider experience. You know, there's a lot of stress for riders when they don't know when that bus is coming. And so we want to make those investments in technology, in the signage at SkyTrain stations, at bus transfer areas, so that people know when that bus is coming. Because that can be just tr tremendously stressful for people. Mm -hmm. right? yeah. uh, I want to talk just in regards to in a post-COVID environment where you got a lot of uh, folks working from home. Mm -hmm. It's not your traditional nine-to-five jobs for yeah. a lot of folks, even though there's probably a push and pull between businesses and employees. Mm -hmm. How does that impact uh, TransLink moving forward? I'm very curious because uh, that's got to be part of your conversation regards to scheduling at the very least. Yeah, absolutely. The the um, the traditional nine to five schedule, the, the AM and PM peaks, um, I'd say they're not as peaky as they used to be, mm -hmm. but they're still there. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, from a scheduling perspective, we have seen the weekends come back uh, stronger than the weekdays. Not to say that the weekdays aren't still at 90%, but those weekends, you know, when people have somewhere to go on the weekends, they're taking transit to get there. Hmm. I, I think for us, you know, where we've had to be nimble and, and quite frankly, adapt to the, the circumstances thrown at us is from a, a geographic perspective. So, you know, I, I noted the, the ridership return in Surrey. Well, we've had to, you know, reallocate service. 17% uh, of our service uh, has gone into Surrey and Langley and uh, the, the Langleys to, so that, you know, we can meet that, uh, that demand. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so for us, it's, it is re-looking at schedules for different areas. Some areas have more uh, commuters coming in, some areas much less so. And so we've had to adapt. It, it has completely transformed the way that people travel in the region uh, post-COVID. And I think that we know hybrid work in some form is likely here to stay. Mm -hmm. I, I, I always like to think that, you know, we know that ridership will soon come back to 100%. It'll be a different 100% than was riding uh, pre-COVID. You're speaking to Kevin Quinn, CEO of TransLink. Um, we're talking about what TransLink must deal with uh, up to 2050 as we add another million more residents uh, to the Metro Vancouver region. Uh, Kevin, let's talk a little bit about um, just the quality of service sometimes. And I was reading something earlier today, uh, and it's the city of Houston where they want to get more people engaged in, in, in the transit system, but there's not a lot of money to, to buy as many buses as you want and those types of things. And what they've done there, and I don't know how successful it's going to be, is some of the smaller routes, they've, they've pulled back on resources and added them to the major routes. So people may not always be close to a bus stop, mm -hmm. but uh, the bus stops that, that are the next stop or whatever it may be will have more service. Um, could you see something like that? Because I know you're looking for more dollars from the feds. You're going to look for more dollars from the province. Perhaps there's other ways to raise money, but you know, there's always a fight for dollars from the pub on the mm -hmm. public side. Could you ever look at something like that in regards to just making sure you, you you're maximizing all the, all the dollars that you have? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what you're getting at is sort of a, a traditional age old philosophical debate around, you know, frequency versus coverage here. Mm -hmm. So, 
you know, jokingly, we like to say, you know, how, how thin do you want to spread the peanut butter, right? Yeah. You know, do you want to put a whole lot of peanut butter on just a few corridors or do you want to spread it thin all around? There's just limited resources. Yeah. And so, uh, so, you know, to your point, you know, what I think, uh, it sounds like Houston is doing is, is taking off of some of those coverage routes and adding it to higher frequency. I think one of the differences that I've seen in coming, uh, from the U S is, is how Canadian systems approach this and Canadian systems really prioritize frequency, Really, uh, frequency is freedom. Frequency is king. And so I'm very proud of the fact that TransLink has uh, roots at uh, very high frequencies compared to those, those U.S. roots. Um, and in fact, you know, part of the 10-year priorities includes uh, increasing those frequencies uh, in off-peak hours, which is a complaint that we often get. You know, buses running at 15 minutes need to be every five. Buses running at every 30 need to run every 15 or mm-hmm. uh, even more frequently in the evening hours when people are trying to get to work. Um, and so, you know, I think for our part, what we want to do is, you know, increase that frequency. We, we, we want the best of both worlds. We want both frequency on these routes and coverage because what we recognize is, you know, when people, um, people will use a service when it's so frequent that they don't need a schedule, right? They don't need to look at when it's going to come. They just want to go out to the bus stop and know that within a few minutes, a bus is going to come and serve them. Mm-hmm. That is the type of service that allows people to get out of their cars, that's the type of service that allows people to say, you know what, I don't need to drive today because I know there's a reliable service that's going to come frequently and take me where I need to go. And it's going to be reliable and on time and safe, all those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's kind of where we're, where we're thinking. Okay. Um, let's talk about funding the system. Um, sure. uh, twice this week, we've had a, a significant amount of calls and conversation around the carbon tax, mm. which is a broader national conversation mm, sure. provincially. Um, uh, we're going to talk about it at 5 o'clock again. And people concerned about the growth of the carbon tax and affordability. That's not specific to TransLink. But what is specific to TransLink, when people gas up, 18.5 cents per litre sure. goes towards funding TransLink. Every time I see a Tesla, that's one less person paying into um, paying for our transit system, right? It remains probably the existential threat to TransLink, Um, Do we need a new funding model in regards to where we're going? Yes, we do. Absolutely, we do. And I I think, you know, I started off our conversation by noting that we're at a very uh, pivotal crossroads for TransLink. And I think this is is part of it. You know, the the traditional funding models for funding transit have been the same for for decades, for generations, right? Mm -hmm. And it's uh, heavily relied on fuel taxes. And I think... Uh, there a couple things have happened. You know, one is COVID really kind of broke that model and suddenly technology allows people to work from home, you know, mm-hmm. as you noted. Mm-hmm. A second piece of it is this fuel tax piece, which is, uh, you know, we have more uh, energy efficient vehicles out on the road. We now have EVs that aren't paying into the system. And so, you know, we actually think that TransLink's uh, total fuel tax revenue that we've uh, that we've received has probably peaked last year, and when we take a look out at projections over the next ten years, that is a, a precipitously declining revenue source. And that's not just TransLink; that's every North American transportation agency that's funded through fuel taxes facing this exactly uh, exactly the same problem. And so we do need a, a new funding model. We need to rethink uh, our passenger fares. We need to rethink. Um, uh, the fuel tax. Uh, we've, we're facing these really big external cost pressures, like inflation uh, has just done a tremendous number. Everybody's feeling this, right? Everybody's mm-hmm. feeling it, and TransLink uh, is no different. 
Will it in meaning the federal government perhaps would have to put more money in? Would it mean the provincial government be the sole fund, funder beyond just uh, fares uh, when you get into a bus? I mean, how do you subsidize that 18 and a half cents? That's a lot of money. It is, yeah. I, I think we've got to get creative. I, I think it's going to take all partners coming to the table, both the province and the federal government. You know, right now, the federal government has come forward with a permanent transit fund that would take effect in 2026. I want to note that uh, that's $3 billion nationwide. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, our 10-year uh, priorities is a, is a at least a $21 billion plan. And so we've got to do more, right? We, we know this region is growing. We know we have overcrowding. And so we have to... we we have to solve this funding problem, uh, both on the capital and the operating side as we're facing all of these pressures uh, of, of a growing system and an overcrowded system and new areas we know we have to serve. Kevin Quinn, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. This weekend, we will see the launch of the first major acapella festival in Vancouver. It'll be on Sunday, November 5th in North Vancouver with headliners Countermeasure from Toronto. The one-day program includes inspiring workshops from industry experts with local artists Key Side Voices and the North Shore Ensemble Sweet Scarlet. Uh, joining me now is J.M. Erlinson, General Manager of the Sing Festival Organization and bass singer with Countermeasure, and Aaron Jensen, Musical Director, Composer and Singer with Countermeasure as well. J.M. and Aaron, welcome. Hi, thank hey. you so much for having us. I've been never been more afraid uh, of a segment, <laughs> and, it's, and it's got nothing to do with you two gentlemen, uh, but we'll talk about that uh, later in regards to what we're going to be doing. But talk to me, uh, J.M., let me start with you first and foremost. Why Vancouver now? That's a great question. You know, Vancouver has such a fantastic tradition of vocal music. From choirs all over the city to emerging a cappella groups, the next generation of professional Canadian a cappella, mm-hmm. we thought it was the right time and we had the right partners to make an expansion of what we do in Toronto and in Texas and in Edmonton to this fair city, the city of music in the West. Uh, talk to me a little bit about Toronto uh, and the uh, countermeasure itself and the festival. I mean, this is what, your 12th year, 13th year there? Yeah, 13 years. So so countermeasure is has uh, been one of the founding groups of the festival. We've been making interesting and innovative jazz harmony, and we really loved what we were doing and we saw amazing things happening all over the world. Other festivals, whether they be in the United States or across the pond in Europe, and we thought this would be a, an opportunity to learn and grow in a Canadian way, mm-hmm. creating not a competitive festival, not something that's specific to a region, but also bringing from all over the world to Toronto, a, a cosmopolitan city, inspirational performances and workshops we wanted to showcase to ourselves and our friends. Mm-hmm. And what went from a couple days festival turned into weeks long and expanding to other cities and finding more and more hearts to sing with around Canada and around the world. That is great. Uh, Aaron, um, talk to me a little bit about how you first got in- introduced or interested in acapella and just the, the organization itself. Yeah, absolutely. I came to Toronto from Saskatchewan when I was 19 and I came to study composition and really the most salient part of my schooling was the singing group that I found there. I sang in a a college group at York University, JM sang in U of T, and after we finished up, we finished our schooling and we were looking for a new musical family and Countermeasure ended up being that. And we've now been singing together for 14 years. Wow. Yeah, we've toured around the world. We've been to Japan and Italy and uh, Scotland and through Canada and the States and we're having a great time. We were just in the process of releasing a bit of a concept album with a, a 
orchestra, symphony orchestra. We've, oh yeah, uh, yeah. We we just got involved in a film festival, Sing's first film festival this last year, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, always trying to find opportunities to collaborate with new innovative artists and to to meet new people along the way. When you talk, when you think about acapella, what is it about that form of music that is appealing and makes and and you know and and really speaks to the form lasting for so long? There's something that is absolutely unique about vocal music. It, you've got nothing to hide behind. You are the instrument. And so when you are singing in front of an audience, you are bearing yourself. Mm-hmm. You are, you're limited only by the imagination. If you can think it up in an arrangement, whether that's instrumental imitation or use of vocal looping or beatbox or drawing from all different styles of genres, classical, jazz, whatever else mm-hmm. you can, uh, you can switch on a dime. It's all, it's all within the voice. And I think that there's something really special about the connection that we make with audiences because we are just bodies and voices standing in front of people sharing our stories. <laughs> and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's really special. I guess to a certain degree, one could argue in an era of auto-tune and mm-hmm. editing, it's probably the most authentic. Yeah, absolutely. And we, and we end our show whenever possible. We end our show by singing one song. We put our mics down and we just sing in the acoustic space. And, and it's, it's, we love the bells and whistles. We love to sort of explore, explore and experiment, but there's something really special about looking into the audience and that last number and just hearing the sound, hearing the sound of the space. Mm-hmm. And people really respond to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Jim, talk to me a little bit about uh, this weekend, uh, the one day program. Uh, what kind of workshops would, 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 would you see? Well, you're actually going to get a taste of that workshop a little bit later today. <laughs> we look at vocal percussion and instrument mimicry. You know, that's the idea of acapella. We have to pretend in some ways to be a band, you know, to to trick the ear. And so you'll have a chance to come in and see that. There's there's workshops on business of music. There's workshops on a few different like aspects that both amateur and professional musicians would love to hear a little more about. And then over the course of the night, you're going to hear Countermeasure, you're going to hear Sweet Scarlet, you're going to hear Keyside Voices, and you'll have the premiere of a couple of the films that we filmed with acapella backing for the first time here in Vancouver. And so that's going to be a packed afternoon and evening of programming this Sunday at Lynn Valley United Church, starting at 4 o'clock for the workshops, mm-hmm. but ending up at 7.30 with a fantastic performance. Well, that sounds like a, like a lot of fun. I do want to ask you this because we've had a lot of community groups, arts groups come through, uh, and maybe Jim, I start with you. What was getting through COVID like? <laughs> um, so people who on the on the radio can't see me. No, uh, I'm I'm wearing a I'm still wearing protective devices for myself. Uh, COVID was actually not too uh, not not too different uh, than what it would have been otherwise because I got really sick during it and not with COVID. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it, for me, it was all about um, staying connected with this community of of people who who lifted me up. You think about an acapella um, ensemble, you are an instrument as a, as a group. And yeah. as an individual, you're one string in that instrument. But when anyone gets sick, the whole instrument starts to sound a little different. Mm-hmm. This is the buoying of human interaction through virtual means or through safe and, and other spaces we could interact. It was a beautiful, a beautiful time 
to to be in a family like this through music. And we still made content. We created a lot of virtual content. We put on a, an amazing sing during Sing Toronto when we couldn't be there in person. We put on a virtual concert through essentially a, a visual production album, which mm -hmm. was just amazing. And countermeasuremusic.com had so much content going out on that every every week, every every couple of months we were producing a whole new album. You know, through the first couple months of the pandemic, we were already releasing content. So it was fantastic um, in that respect. So as people fell apart from each other, we came together through music mm -hmm. and through the love of our craft and our in each other to make something beautiful to inspire even though we couldn't be together. Uh, Aaron, how about you? I mean, a lot of artists have talked about, you know, COVID being very stifling just because you couldn't get together with your loved ones. Jim started talking about that a little bit. Was the online world enough for you? I mean, sometimes you need a lot more as an artist to fill your soul. Uh, what was it like for you just as an artist in regards to just wanting to produce, wanting to share, all of that? It was a huge shift, obviously. Like, we had... Major tours planned that were called off. Many of our in-person events, a lot of our recording was was stopped, and so we really shifted gears. So during that period of time, it became an incredible stockpiling, a creative stockpiling of content. And so the the film score is this orchestral project, this secondary conceptual project with solo guest instrumentalists. Like we we created essentially two albums worth of material and three films worth of soundtrack over the course of the pandemic and made it work however we could. We, we experimented with means of rehearsing through Skype or through <laughs> Zoom or whatever yes. else. And that, that had its obvious challenges. I mean, you know, there's latency and, it's, and there's, no, there's no substitute for being in person. Yeah. And we sang outside and we found ways of making it work but really i feel like we're now just catching up we created so much content yeah. and now that we're back together we're just so excited to be sharing it if you're just joining us we are speaking to jam erlinson general manager of the sing festival uh organization and a bass singer with countermeasure from toronto of course aaron jensen musical director composer and singer with countermeasure as well they're involved with the first major acapella festival in vancouver uh, this sunday in north vancouver uh, workshops are also going to be held 4 p.m is when the workshop begins 7 p.m is when there, uh, there's a show, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, gentlemen, it's singtoronto.com if you want to get tickets. Singtoronto.com. Singtoronto.com. It's the first year here for this acapella festival. Uh, as well, uh, both you gentlemen uh, will be at the Blue Frog Studios tomorrow in White Rock at 7 p.m. So if you can't make it to the North Shore, guess what? They're going to be south of the Fraser as well. It's Blue Frog Studios in White Rock at 7 p.m. Now, we've talked about acapella, <laughs> and uh, I, I can talk, but uh, artistic talent is not my thing, I don't believe. <laughs> I don't believe but, you. But, but uh, I would love to hear you guys sing, but uh, you walk me through, and if I can help, I will help. I, I, I think we, we would like him to help, right, AJ? Uh, absolutely. I, I'm, a, I'm an advocate that everyone can sing. There's no, there's no barriers. It's just a sheer force of will. However, maybe just an easy thing before you, before we get into the the more complex of singing, let's just do the easy stuff. Okay. Now, so I do what's called vocal percussion, which is, and by the way, you have a fantastic beatboxer community here in Vancouver. Oh. That ain't me. <laughs> However, vocal percussion is like you're acting as if you're the drum set of a band. Share some similarities, but it is very specific to creating a, a series of sounds and putting them in a pattern. So you and I are going to do that right now. Okay. How's the sound? Okay. All right. <laughs> Let's go with the easiest one of all. So this is a kick drum. Okay. Just say the word boo, like it's Halloween. Boo. Boo. 
Now you're gonna say the word boo, but you're gonna think the letter P at the beginning. So boo, boo. Now say that P really hard, boo, boo. And you wanna feel it exploding, boo, boo. All right, now take out the oo, so it's just boo, boo. Hey, all right. <laughs> the next one is, is, let's make it a little bit harder. This one is gonna be our snare. So you hear like a okay. on thing, but we're gonna do an easy one, just the letter kit. 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 Now say, just say the, the word kit, K-I-T, kit. Kit. Now say it really hard like you mean it. Kit. Kit. All right, now take out the it, so it's just kit. Yeah, there we are. Okay. So we have boo and kit. Now we're gonna put. That's right. We're gonna put just a little bit of a T in the middle. So just go t, 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 t. There we are. Now take out the uh. It's t, t. All right. So we have t, t as a hi hat and k as a as a snare drum. Easiest pattern of all. The one you might have heard Michael Jackson do. Billy Jean is b t k t b t k t. Want to try that with me? Heat 
for all Canadians. That is the position of the NDP in BC, Manitoba and Alberta as well. Now the question is whether the NDP will vote against its cash-strapped constituents and in favor of the Prime Minister. So can the PM tell us, was, is this vote part of the coalition agreement or does the NDP have the freedom to vote for their constituents? The Leader of the Opposition wants to talk about places across the country. Let's talk about them. 20,000 Saskatchewanians heat their homes with home heating oil. 50,000 Albertans and uh, about 100,000 British Columbians, Mr. Speaker. That is dirty, it is more polluting, and it is more expensive, particularly for the predominantly lower-income families that rely on this. That's why we're moving forward to replace them with heat pumps. It was heated, that's for sure. Uh, Keith, uh, your thoughts on the federal conversation, but more importantly, what types of pressure does this put on the provincial NDP to do something to, to, to address the issue of affordability for people? Oh, I think it, it, it puts pressure, but pressure was already there. When, when the Trudeau government abruptly changed its position on carbon taxing in Atlantic Canada, that ignited a, a debate on, on carbon taxes and on taxing home heating. And it wasn't just confined to federal politics. And so it was no coincidence that the VC United opposition party here very quickly moved up its timing for announcing a major policy in its platform, and that was to exempt home heating from the carbon tax in BC. Uh, that alone, I think, puts a little pressure on the EB government to do something about, uh, about home heating at the very least. And I wouldn't be surprised. I'll be talking about this on Global News Hour tonight. I think there's a good chance that the spring budget will see some sort of uh, provision, either an exemption of the carbon tax or perhaps an energy rebate scheme. Uh, not a tax credit. Those are kind of um, not really effective for people. But a rebate, maybe a reduction in your hydro bill, maybe a check. We've certainly seen governments do that before. Uh, the carbon tax was introduced when affordability and cost of living was not a concern to people. That was back in 2008. It, uh, inflation only became a concern in the last couple of years, and that's when the carbon tax started to go up and up and up. So it's unlike the tax that was first introduced that had significant support. Now it's almost a 50-50 proposition with the public. And I think the combination of what's going on in Ottawa and what Polio is doing and what BC United now is making part of their platform, not to mention the BC Conservatives, which can't be discounted here, want to get rid of the carbon tax entirely, means I don't think the NDP can stick to its position that there could be no changes of either the carbon tax or some sort of financial relief when it comes to energy costs. So in many ways, do you do you think this is the beginning of, of the end for the carbon tax? I know Mr. Falcon was on this show uh, just the other day saying that, look, if uh, Mr. Polyev kills the carbon tax, he's going to kill it here in BC if he's elected premier. Uh, I mean, you and I have talked about this before, but, you know, one of the things you brought up in the past is, is it actually changing behavior? And one could argue it's not. Um, your thoughts on this? Is this the beginning of the end of at least a rethink of what carbon tax is in the context of not just affordability, but where we are compared to many other jurisdictions around the world? Yeah, I had a column out of just a couple of weeks ago speculating, are politicians going to start losing their nerve? when it comes to adopting policies to fight climate change that bite people in the wallet. You see the UK government and uh, the Conservative government in the United Kingdom has already backed away from a host of, of uh, climate change fighting policies because it was affecting people's um, uh, pocketbooks. The Prime Minister there said that now was not the time to be have an onerous cost on the working people of Britain. So they blinked. 
You've got Trudeau now blinking in Atlantic Canada because the polls were looking terrible for him. They just introduced the carbon tax. I mean, we've had it for 15 years. This is a new thing for them back east. But many more people are, you know, using uh, oil there, and that was the exemption. So I think you've got governments are blinking at this. And when one, uh, your major opponent wants to adopt a significantly different position on, on carbon pricing right now, uh, that may force the government to move its own position. And the great irony, of course, is when the BC Liberals, the precursor to BC United, brought in the carbon tax, the NDP opposed the carbon tax <laughs> and fought an election and lost in 2009. So that was where both parties started. Now you've got the BC United basically moving away from the carbon tax that it introduced, and the NDP so far supporting a tax that it originally opposed. So talk about flip-flops from both sides. But uh, this argument and this debate is just actually getting started. It's not ending. So I think anything's possible. Either I, don't, I can't see the EB government eliminating the carbon tax entirely, but I can certainly see some changes if it's allowable under federal legislation. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's go from affordability to housing this week. Uh, housing Minister Vikelon announced uh, a plan that will require most municipalities across BC to automatically allow four units on land that's about 3,000 square feet and six units, uh, units if it's also near transit. Also, under the new rules, lengthy public hearings would be done away with and in, in two years, and rezoning will be effectively done uh, away with altogether in some cases. I had Eric Woodward on the show, uh, the mayor of the township of Langley, fast-growing community. Uh, here's his thoughts on the proposed legislation. In the Willoughby area, where we have significant new land coming into urban development, around 200 Street, um, we have other established single-family neighborhoods like Walnut Grove or Murrayville um, that are now going to be having this density imposed upon them with no planning process around schools, um, park acreage per resident, um, a number of other factors which are, are involved in the overall community planning process. Um, if you simply come in and say you're now able to quadruple densities in these areas, I'm not sure how that's going to work for park capacity, recreation facilities, or schools um, that are full in those areas. So now how is that going to work? Uh, and, uh, you know, when I was talked to um, uh, Mayor Woodward, uh, I found his comments to be thoughtful, uh, not that he's against some of this, but he also said, look, it opens up a whole new can of worms. And I guess the biggest issue here is why do we have local councils? One could argue that's where the red tape is, that's where we get no housing built. At the same time, the provincial government is essentially bigfooting all these local councils. Uh, your thoughts on that? I mean, is there yep. some potential trouble there for, for, the, for, the, for Victoria? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, this is a major over, potentially overreach by the NDP government. Um, may, they're making the argument drastic, pretty strong action is required to go over the heads of councils who stubbornly refuse to build housing. And a couple have been signaled out. Oak Bay over here in the island, which is very affluent, another affluent municipality is West Vancouver. Uh, some municipalities have, uh, municipalities have bought into this, saying, yep, this, is, this certainly uh, fits our plan. But, uh, you know, Mayor Woodward raised a very good uh, point. Other mayors are going to raise this as well. Along with housing comes a host of other things, and that's costs. And that means things like infrastructure, water pipes, sewer pipes, parking concerns. Um, Not just, you know, concerns about four houses on a lot, because with four houses comes increased pressure on infrastructure. Now, there's a bit of money um, offered by Victoria on this, uh, I think something like $60 million to start assisting municipalities with with, uh, infrastructure costs. 
but one assumes that's nowhere near enough. So that's where I think some of the opposition from the local council is going to come is on some of the costs that are going to be dumped on them uh, to uh, accommodate a great increase in housing. But philosophically, this is certainly a move by Victoria to go more than just an end run around municipalities. This is going right over their heads on something that's at the heart of many people's municipal council, and that's zoning laws. I mean, it doesn't get more municipal than that, than zoning. And now you've got uh, Victoria basically inserting itself in here in a way historically it never has done before. Now, one of the issues right now, we still haven't seen a lot of the details in this Mm -hmm. legislation. It's, It's in part of what are called regulations. And that's what we've seen in this government, this fall setting. They brought in some pretty meaty pieces of legislation that is unusual for a fall session. Usually you see that in the spring. This is in the fall, which is a shorter session, so there's less time to scrutinize the bills. But there's not a lot of detail on the short-term rental bill, uh, short-term uh, rental accommodation bill, which basically gets rid of Airbnbs. And there's a lot of not, not a lot of details on the housing bill. So we're still waiting to see a lot of details, the nitty-gritty stuff, before I think you can draw too many really strong conclusions yet. Hmm. Well, there's a lot to talk about and debate on that issue. Uh, we got about about 90 seconds left, but I wanted to bring this up, and most people don't pay attention to the stuff. You had called me and updated to me on this the other day. Um, every quarter, uh, Elections BC uh, puts out numbers in regards to what political parties uh, are raising in regards to funds. Um, and this the last quarter, which stretches from July 1st to September 30th of this year, so the, over the summer months, uh, the BC NDP is leading, uh, raising about $868,000 in that quarter. Number two is BC United with $399,000. So uh, NDP is double, you know, raising about double more. More than double the BC United, BC Green Party's at 161,000, and the Conservative Party, BC Conservatives, at 52,000. Your thoughts on the fact that the NDP if, is, you know, essentially raising more than double what BC United uh, has well, raised? If I, if I was BC United, I'd be very concerned about this because the B, first of all, the NDP does raise more money than BC United. One of the smartest things the Horton government did was banning corporate and labor donations, and that really kicked the BC Liberals and now the BC United a bit in the teeth because that was their main fundraising arm. That's gone now. And the NDP's always excelled at smaller individual donations. But what the EBC United has to be concerned is not only are they way behind the NDP, as they have been the last couple quarters, but their numbers have dropped significantly. They went from 768000 in the previous quarter to just under 400000 in the in the most recent quarter. And it's I don't think it's any coincidence that this quarter covers a period of time where we saw a couple of opinion polls that had BC United and the Conservatives basically tied. And I think it's very hard to raise money. Right, I've heard this from BC United supporters. It's hard to raise money when it doesn't look like you're going to be the government, that they're now mired in third place in some cases. And that's just not a good sales pitch, frankly, to people to say, give us money when it doesn't look like you're the payoff of forming power and forming government and implementing policies is there. So if they were more competitive with the NDP, I think they'd be raising more money. And until those polls improve, I don't think their fundraising is going to improve. It's going to be very interesting when you get the next set of polls, probably uh, early in the new year, uh, then you'll get a good, better sense of where things are. And I think there will be quite a few repercussions from that. But that's another day. But uh, very interesting time in Victoria, that's for sure. Keep Always Always is, that's for sure. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.